Well, for those of you who don't know, my name is Dan Krauss, and I'm actually the lead pastor here at Rosedale Bible Church. I only say that because I've been gone for three weeks, or I should say three weeks out of the pulpit. I don't want to hear anybody yelling and think, yay, yay, why are you back? But uh, Colette and I were on vacation for two of those weeks, and I want to thank John Doobie, Pastor John, and he taught from the book of Acts, and I know that many of you were blessed because many of you have told me so. So, John, thank you for doing that. Last week, we heard from, and I make sure I get this right, Howard Brandt. I want to call him Harold for some reason, but it's Howard Brandt, and he spoke to us regarding missions, and he did a great job, an outstanding job. My wife and I were outside in the nursery that day, and honestly, I'm just telling you, I was pulling the little kids along from the nursery, and I walked by the, the barbecue, and they gave me food to eat while I was out there, while you guys were listening to Howard. So, I munched before that, but it was a good time. So, after Colette and I got back on Wednesday, a few Wednesdays ago, I traveled to Phoenix, Arizona for a quick, well, a quick time at a Pacific District Conference Mennonite Brethren biannual meeting. It's where all the the churches, or most of the churches from the Pacific District, which is Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Arizona, and I believe Utah, and we get together and we hear about what's happening, what God is doing, and there are many good things that are going on, and one of my favorite things about that particular conference is when they speak about planting churches. It is just amazing. You hear about what God's doing, and I'm always, I'm a, have a soft heart for Utah. I don't know why, I just do. I have a soft heart for the Mormon people, and it's a different country there. I'm not even saying a different, it's a different country. But God is moving there and saving many. Well, on Friday night, our speaker who spoke twice. He spoke on Friday night and Saturday morning. On Friday night, he's, whose name, his name was Josh Butler, and he spoke and gave us a time about what we have in common in Christ. And that's when I said, we, being all of the churches, and we who were there in the, in the room. And what he spoke about specifically was what Christ did on the cross. We have that in common. Out of all the things that we might not agree on, the way folks do things, ecclesiology, ecclesiology, the way they do things, the way they do church, we can agree on Christ. And it was a, it was a glorious truth that God reunified God and man. That's what happened. It was reunification. If you trust in Christ, we can stand before the Father because we are in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven, and all things have been made new. And because we've been reconciled with Christ, we can be reconciled <gasps> with each other. No excuse, brothers and sisters. We need to love each other. Well, on Saturday morning, Josh became more pastoral, 
Now, what I mean by that, it wasn't a teaching time. It was, well, it was teaching, but he tried to get at our hearts. See, many of us were tired or are tired. That's kind of why my wife and I went on vacation. I mean, I, I, you guys know what vacation's like, right? But I know some of you do. But we're tired. And COVID's been hard. I know you know that. But everybody feels it. So he taught about, he wanted to teach the teachers, teach the pastors, and, and he spoke about how we and I must understand that when we, I, fall short, by that I mean when we sin, yes, I do, quite often, or when we do not feel that we are adequate, yes, I do, quite often, we, I, often tend to run away from God. We run away. I mean, of course, yeah, we, we, we still pray, we still give God glory, we still pray at, at dinner time. But instead of running to Him and resting in His presence, we run away and maybe sometimes pity party. Well, the reason we and I, you're going to hear a lot of we and I this week because When I'm talking to you, I'm talking to the whole group of you, and when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me. Why do we run? Well, I suppose it could be a number of things. It could be embarrassment, thinking and knowing that we, I, have messed up again, have sinned, have fallen short, and because of this, how can or how will, why will the Father look at me the same way that He looked at me when I came to Him at the first? How can we, I, even have a relationship with God that we, I, had before I messed up. Or possibly for some have never had a relationship before. We hide. We hide. We go and we escape to wherever we escape to. Why do we do this? Well, Jesus simply said this. He said, People love darkness rather than light. Sometimes we'd rather sit in a dark room than commune with Christ. We try to escape. Well, think of Adam and Eve, and I want us to really think about this. Think of Adam and Eve. They are real people. They were real people. They were the, free, the creation of God. They were not an imaginary fable. 
Adam and Eve, after they had eaten the forbidden fruit, the one thing that God said, don't do it, and the one thing that they did do, what'd they do? Genesis 3 tells us they hid. They hid. Where they'd once had a close, intimate relationship of walking with God. In the cool of the breeze, in the cool of the afternoon. Can you imagine walking face to face with God? They tried to remove themselves from the one who had made them, the one who had given them everything, from the one who had created everything, the, the perfect environment that they lived in, from the one whom they rebuffed. The one that we've rebuffed. But I want you to notice something that's very important. I want us to understand this because we have to understand it. Because we often assume the opposite. Instead of leaving Adam and Eve to their own devices, God pursued them. He didn't just let them sit there. We all know what he had said. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. He did not take the divine lightning bolt and strike them dead. He pursued them. He did not destroy them. Actually, he even provided clothing for them so they could be at least clothed. And he promised Adam and Eve heard this promise. He actually promised this to Satan. One will come, and one will destroy what you have done. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And what he was talking about is Christ, salvation. Even in Adam and Eve's lost condition, we often use the phrase fallen condition. God pursued them. And church, even in our messed up condition, my messed up condition, God pursues us. He still pursues those who are lost. And when the lost are recovered, it brings God joy. It brings Him joy. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles. As God explains, Jesus explains, God's joy in recovering the lost. That's the name of our sermon today, God's joy in recovering the lost. We're going to observe the first two acts, and I don't mean acts as in acts or acts of mercy or acts of this, but the two acts of a story. There, it's a three-act parable. We're going to cover the first two acts this morning and the next and the last act, the third act, next week. So, out of the respect to the Word of God, I would ask that you stand with me. 
And I'd ask you to read along as I read our passage this morning, and it's Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. The Word of the Lord says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May God bless the reading of His Word, and may we understand, may we obey and relish and rejoice in what the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us today. Please be seated. Well, first of all, Dr. Luke writes the reason, why the reason I say Dr. Luke, because Luke wrote the gospel that's named after him in the book of Acts, and we know that he was a physician that traveled with Paul. So, Paul got beat up so many times, he had to have a physician on call. So, Luke kind of traveled with him. So, he wrote three stories to make up the parable. Jesus did this uh, in chapter 15. But let me explain the backstory to you just a little bit. We, I, often fall into these two camps that Jesus is talking about. And depending on what minute we check ourselves, we could be in either one of them. Now you're going, what are you talking about? Well, one side we have the religious elite, and those on the other side, people who need God desperately. Notice everybody needs God desperately, but the religious elite often don't think they need God. The religious elite, I define them as being holier than thou. People who place themselves above others on the moral scale, they always one-up someone. They always do things better. They always, well, I'm in better standing before God because well, <laughs> you do this. I would never do that those who think and believe that God is lucky to have them on their team. These man, men added man-made rules to God's law. They fenced the law. That's a good way to put it. So, there is no way that I'm going to break God's law. Take case in point, the Sabbath. You could only walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath day. If you walked one more step, you broke the Sabbath. You've broken God's law. Case in point, you're going to have a meal together. 
the Pharisees and the scribes, they made sure that you washed yourself in a certain way with, in a, you'd take places where you would take baths, but also washing the hands. Notice that when Jesus w- always talked, all oh, your disciples didn't wash their hands when they were walking through the field and just eating the grain. Well, these were the Pharisees. They wouldn't be caught dead associating with the great unwashed. And I should air quote the great unwashed. You know, those who might, for us, frequent a bar every once in a while. For those who might watch an R-rated movie every once in a while. I'm I'm just saying. Maybe the difference between now, make sure you get this, the nose, the snotty nose, you know, the looking down. Ivy League and high school dropout. The difference. Blue collar, white collar. Well, let alone this, I'm not, I'm not even talking about the tax collectors that everybody hated. Even the great unwashed hated the tax collectors because they stole from the people. They, they made their money, and, it, and not even that. How about the prostitutes? Sinners. I'm not even going where the, what the prostitutes did. You fill in the blank. William Barclay informs us how the Pharisees saw the sinners and the tax collectors. And I think to a point, the shepherds and the women, the shepherd and the woman. The Pharisees gave, and I quote, the Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them the people of the land. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land. The Pharisaic regulations laid it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, trust no money to him, Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or to have him as a guest. He was even forbidden, so as far as it was possible, to have any business dealings with him. It was a deliberate Pharisaic aim to avoid every contact with the people who did not observe the petty details of the law. Not saying, not saying don't obey the law, but the petty details. We would say we need to obey the spirit of the law, what God actually meant it to be. The strict Jews said, Not that there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but there will be joy in heaven over the one sinner who is obliterated before God. Wow. But Jesus, God's Son, who created the universe, declared this, for the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. You see the difference? Jesus, speaking of the the lost sinners, Jesus genuinely loved them. He never condoned sin. Think with me when the, the woman who was caught in adultery, he never condoned her sin. He told her, go and sin no more. But he said, I don't condemn you. Go. He wasn't condoning the sin. But he forgave the sinner. He befriended them. He befriended you. He befriended me. Something that sinners often never experience from God's kids. And that's why exactly why verse 1 tells us this, now the tax collectors and the sinners we're all drawing near to him. I can imagine so. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. A poet writes this. He said, The Savior receives sinners, not for them to remain sinners, but he receives them in order to pardon their sins, justify their persons, cleanse their hearts, preserve their souls by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and enable them to serve Him, to show forth praise, and to have communion with Him. He receives sinners and plucks them as, a brands, as brands from the burning and preserves them as costly monuments of His mercy. Jesus was and is not polluted by His contact with them. You or I. He's come to carry and hold the one who is His. He wants you. He wants sinners. So he told them this parable. Both stories are very, very similar. Both have loss, both have a search, both have recovery, and both have great rejoicing. Now understand this, when Jesus was telling this parable, He was telling it again to those who were around Him, but specifically to the Pharisees and the scribes who were overhearing this. And the Pharisees and the scribes did not want to relate to either two, either one or these two, or especially the third, we'll see next week. I don't want to be a part of that. Jesus was sticking the knife in and twisting it. He was tweaking them. He got their attention. I already described to you what the shepherds were considered. They were the lowest of the low. But think with me, how does Psalm 23 describe the Lord? The Lord is my shepherd. Huh. What occupation were the 12 sons of Israel? 
and Israel and Jacob before them? Shepherds. Maybe this one. What was King David before he was king? He was a shepherd. And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Well, if you're a lady, don't worry. The Pharisees also held the women in contempt as well. They were of very low esteem. One was actually quoted in a prayer saying, Thank you, Lord, that I am not a woman. I'm not saying that for jokes. That's what they thought of the female persuasion. But keeping with Psalm 23, now I want you to think well, through me, the Lord prepares a table before me. Do you know what preparing a table, whose job that was in that society? It was a woman's job. That's no slight. They would have never considered themselves low enough to be either, but yet. Let's begin with the loss and the search. One lost sheep and one lost coin. We'll look at the loss of the sheep first. Concerning the shepherd, his actions, he needed to seek the lost sheep. Now, was Jesus portraying the shepherd as being irresponsible or foolhardy? Many people look at this and go, why in the world would you leave 99 decent sheep? You know, what's the, what's the parable, the bird in the hand is worth two in a bush? Well, 99 sheep, when you have them cornered and corralled in the open field is definitely, in our idea, is worth more than one who is lost. Well, I don't think so. Was Jesus betraying the shepherd as leaving the 99 by themselves as irresponsible? No, the parable is a story declaring a spiritual truth. What he's saying is, what's the truth? One sheep was important enough to go look for. 99 wasn't good enough. He wanted the other one that was lost as well. Look at verse 4. What man of you, and remember the Pharisees and the scribes, ah, I don't want to think, I'm, I'm, no way I'm going to be a shepherd, but I'll, and I'll listen to his story what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Okay, so what's a sheep? For those of you who don't know, they are not the smartest animal in the barnyard. That is so you can laugh. They are not smart animals. They tend to wonder. They look, just, hey, that looks good over there, and they can soon go over a hill, and they're, they're gone. They walk away from the flock to their own detriment. They stray. The prophet Isaiah wrote this about you, me, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Notice it wasn't some of you went. All have gone their own way. Jesus is saying the one who is lost is important enough to leave the comfort and the safety of the normal, the open country, and not give up before the lost is found. He went searching, and he didn't stop until he found it. Maybe another truth before we go on. The Pharisees saw themselves as God's special flock. Again, God, you're lucky to have me. But the one sheep that was lost that couldn't help itself was worth the effort to find. That's how God sees the outcasts. That's how God sees you and me. Do you have someone that's close to you who's wondered? That are still away from the shepherd? Waiting for them to come home or waiting for God to grab them? God, why don't you go? Are you waiting for someone to go grab that person? Have you wondered? Are you playing the game by being here today? If I show up and do my penance, my hour and a half of the week, God wants you. Where's your heart? What about the lost coin? This is likely a part of the woman's dowry that was, she took into the marriage. It was technically hers, even if the marriage dissolved. She had a coin. She had ten of them. And in verse 8, Jesus tells us, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. You might say, it's only one coin, you have nine more. That's a Pharisee talking there. That's me talking if I'm not careful. The coin is important to its owner and to the woman she could think of nothing else than to get that coin back, to find that coin. The first century woman often wore these, this, this in a string and what we would call a bracelet or she would even wear it as a, a headpiece and if one was gone, 
It left a gap. And also, it had a great importance, too, because it was part of a set. She still had nine, but she was missing one. Who are, you, who are we missing? Have we searched? Or do we just say, well, they'll be here next week? The set has more value as a set than one on its own, but the one on its own was very important as well. In fact, it's so important that the woman made a meticulous and careful, diligent search. She didn't have electricity to go flip a light on. She, where she lived would have been a small house that would have had a dirt floor that was packed that had some straw in it because probably some of the animals from the area would have lived in the house itself. And she would have taken a broom and she would have swept every place in that house, hopefully hearing the, the clink. And she always had a little oil lamp that she would have held and it's on her knees. You can see the panic or feel the panic, understand the panic. And she would want to remove any obstacle that might have covered it up. One more thing that the lost sheep and the lost coin have in common neither know that they're lost. The sheep's going on its merry way. What both of them have in common, they need someone to go after them. Well, we've witnessed the loss and the search. Now we come to the recovery and joy. First speaking of the shepherd. Verse 5 tells us, and when he has found it, it's the shepherd finding the sheep. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now think with me. If this is speaking of a believer, there's no lecture given to the sheep. The shepherd didn't find the sheep, take the sheep, by its face, lift it up, you idiot sheep. If it's a new convert, the shepherd didn't have his clippers with him and clip off all that dirty wool before he took the, she the sheep and put it on his shoulders. He took the sheep as it was. He carries it on his shoulders, not dragging it along by a shepherd's crook. The shepherd makes sure that the lost sheep gets home. He's the one that makes sure. He's the one that makes sure that the, the sheep is returned to where it needs to be. 
The Lord often used the image of a shepherd and the nation of Israel as a sheep. Joel read it this morning in Ezekiel. We also find it in the book of Psalms and Isaiah. All through the Old Testament, Israel, the nation, your sheep. I'm the shepherd. And carrying it, the sheep on its shepherd's, on its, excuse me, on its shoulders is the easiest way. We think of a sheep going, oh yes, I'm just going to lay on the shepherd's shoulders. They're going to go crazy. The shepherd is going to grab its feet and make sure it cannot move because they're not going to like being on the, sh the shoulders of the sheep. I know the pictures we've seen. I know it. No, it doesn't like it. But yet it's comfort. He makes sure that he carries the sheep so it cannot move, so it gets home. The Good Shepherd. How often do we, you, I, picture God this way? If we see Christ as the Good Shepherd, it can change the way we live. It will change the way we view our Savior. It will change the way that we live our lives because we know that He is for us. In the earliest days of Christianity, this portrayal of Christ was emphasized. And I'm speaking of artistic renderings of the Good Shepherds. Scholars have written this. He said, the catacombs are full of carvings of it. Catacombs are, were underneath the Roman city where the Christians were buried. Full of carvings of it. It's in the collection of ancient Christian monuments. We know from Tertullian that it was often designed upon chalices, we find it ourselves painted in fresco upon the roofs and walls of sepulchral chambers, rudely scratched upon gravestones, or more carefully sculptured on sarcophagi, traced in gold upon glass, molded on lamps, engraved on rings, and represented on every type of Christian monument that has ever come down to us. The Good Shepherd represented and expressed the whole sum and substance of genuine Christianity. But yet, when we fall, when we run, when we don't feel that we're good enough, when we feel that we've failed God, what do we do? We hide. Often hide. And when He comes home, He calls together His friends and His neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with Me, for I have found My sheep. That was lost. How the woman found the coin isn't mentioned only, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. It's a picture of great joy on earth. Great joy. And we can understand that, can't we? Because we've seen people come back 
to Christ when they went away. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen people come to Christ for the first time when we thought that we'd never come. And it is great rejoicing. We can be a part of that. And even though Jesus is describing the joy of the shepherd and the woman picturing it as God rejoicing, we too understand the excitement of a sinner being brought home. I know many of you have people who you are close to who are yet standing outside the flock. Pray for them. God is not the shepherd using his rod, using the crook. The picture of the woman dancing with her friends, celebrating over the shining coin, honestly pales in comparison of a lost sinner being found safe and secure in the hands of God. The assurance that Jesus gave when he said this of a believer, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We've witnessed the reason for the parable, the loss and the search, the recovery and joy, and we finish with heaven's joy on account of a lost soul being found. Now, this is the divine application. Don't miss it. It will shape the way that we think about and respond to our Savior. Regarding the lost sheep being found, verse 7 Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And regarding heaven's reaction concerning the coin, just so, I tell you, there is is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the angels are in the presence of God. And they're just looking and they're mirroring what God is doing. God rejoices. He rejoices. What I was reminded of a week ago was the truth of the love of God, the grace of God concerning those who He has found and those who will be found by Him. I didn't want to hide anymore. I want to be with Christ. 
And I pray that we, you, and I will do that. And when that happens, it gives God great joy. In the early 70s, there used to be a bumper sticker that said, I found it. Some of you old folks, you probably remember that bumper sticker. Well, if we take Jesus' words uh, seriously, he's the one who finds us. We wouldn't come to him on our own. They don't find him either, those who need to be found, those who are lost. But he still searches for them, and he still uses his children to point to and to tell others about the truth of his love. That's on us. God uses you me to say, Jesus loves you. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. We point to those to, and show them the truth. What's the truth? Jesus receives sinners. No person has gone too far not to be found but they have to be reached. You were. And I say that as, I don't know the word for it, sarcastically as I possibly can. You were. <laughs> I was. <laughs> and if God saves you, God saves me. No one is beyond it. The good shepherd calls us to go on mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey my commandments. Do we look at others around us as unreachable? They're not. Do we look at people too lost for Christ to save? Do you know how great our God is? You weren't. I wasn't. And when that happened, heaven rejoiced. Let's go forth and tell our world about the one who receives sinners. You know what? A celebration awaits.